passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, our special guest speaker. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Stephen. I'm the family pastor here at Crosswinds. And we're continuing our series called Broken Vessels looking at various people from the Bible and how God uses them, even though they are imperfect, broken, messed up people, all for God's glory. And so as people, we love stories. 85% of the Bible is narrative. We love stories. Whether you read books, watch movies, listen to audiobooks, play games that revolve around storytelling, whatever it is, however you do it, I have not met someone who does not like stories. And our Western storytelling wants us to be able to see ourselves in the heroes. It's why little girls ask for Anna and Elsa outfits, boys dress up like superheroes, Captain America, Iron Man, or Batman, and grown men buy lightsabers. And sometimes we read the Bible through our cultural lens, looking for our ways of storytelling, looking for heroes. Or maybe we read it like Aesop's fables, the tortoise and the hare, or the boy who cried wolf. We look for moral lessons and rules to live our lives by, or to teach to our kids to make them turn out good. But these aspects of storytelling is not at all what the Bible is. And I love this quote from the Jesus Storybook Bible. It says, Now some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it, They show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. Yes, I did just quote a children's Bible, because we need to hear this. Too often I hear people talk like the Bible is heroes or moral lessons and rules, and that is just not true. The Bible is not around to make you feel better about life. The Bible is about God. It's about Jesus first and foremost. The Bible is not some sort of Western blockbuster that's trying to get you hyped up about heroes and making you feel a part of the story, or a fairy tale with some lessons. The book you have in your hand is written in English, but was not originally. It was written in Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek and Aramaic as well, in a completely different part of the world. So for today, I want us to take our Westerner's hat off, and I, and I want you to join me and humbly asking God to show us what he wants us to see in the story of Gideon this morning. Not just what I get out of it. And we're literally going to do that together. And so I want to ask, would you stand? And we're going to read a prayer together that is on the screen. Gracious
be seated. So usually, uh, we would read an entire passage, and then we would kind of go over the text together. But because, like I said, we're looking at a, a very much a story this morning, I want to read little parts of the story and talk about it so it unfolds as if we're really reading it for the first time like people would have read it when it was written to them. But I want to give a little bit of context. Um, and just a quick note, we're talking about you know, looking at the Bible for the people it was written and things like that. If you're looking for a resource to help you understand context, whether it's historical or just how does a book of the Bible fit together within itself, I encourage you to check out uh, what's called the Bible Project uh, online. They have great videos going over each of the books of the Bible and even a podcast on just how to read the Bible. So before we jump into Judges, I want to briefly talk about the book of Joshua. Joshua ends with a covenant renewal. Joshua, Joshua is reminding the people of God's faithfulness and has them renew the covenant. Covenant. They committed to worshiping the Lord and only the Lord. And then we get to the book of Judges, in which we see right off the back, Judah has this momentary success. They go and they do what God has called them to, and then we're hit with failures, failures of the people, vast and repeated. The book of Judges is not a book of heroes. That is actually, I was taught that it was a book of heroes as a kid, but it's not a story of heroes. Rather, it's a tragedy of the decline of God's people that continues in a downward spiral until they're completely unrecognizable. They are no longer holy and set apart. They have worshipped false gods and become gods in their own eyes. In Judges 21-25, which is a summary um, of Judges, and it's repeated multiple times, sets up what Israel was like. Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So really, Israel looked like the people around them. Instead of being set apart, instead of being holy and different, they became chameleons. They adopted the culture and the gods of the people around them. And not just chameleons that disappear. When you read through Judges, like I said, these aren't role models to follow. A brief overview of Judges, it starts with Israel failing to do what God asked and drive out the people from the land. We get a glimpse of Israel's complete moral failures. And as we are told about subsequent Judges in Israel, we see things get more violent, immoral, and disturbing. The first few Judges seem pretty good. They're just very violent stories. A man with a sword, uh, stabbed with a sword through his stomach in great detail. One of Israel's enemies is killed by someone driving a tent peg through their skull. And then we get a judge who ends up leading Israel into a civil war amongst some of the tribes and ultimately into idolatry. A judge who is really a thug and who so doesn't know God that he sacrifices his daughter thinking it will please God. Samson, a violent, sex-crazed man who is hot-headed and seeks revenge at every turn. The tribe of Dan slaughters a peaceful city and builds a temple, a pagan temple, in this new city they just conquered. And finally, Judges closes with the Israelites in Gibeah sexually abusing an Israelite woman. Then the other tribes are angry and not just punish them, they destroy them. Then as regret for this mass violence, they force the young women of Benjamin to pay the price. 
This is the book of Judges, this rapid decline of Israel. Because Israel does not know their God. They do not seek him and they are not following him. And the book of Judges is often called um, this book of the cycle of sin. And we're going to be looking at the book of Gideon. And Israel did not know God. So I want to encourage you, know God. This is not just read your Bible and put it down, but study it. Ask for some good books to help you understand. Like I said earlier, we we read so often with a Western mindset, looking for role models or, or rules. And so put in the work, and it's really worth it. Read the book. There's a book called Not a Fan by Kyle Eidelman, and I really recommend it. There's another book called Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus, Why the Jewishness of Jesus Matters. And it helps us understand the culture, and then, to understand, and then it helps us understand so much of what Jesus is saying. Find another believer, get coffee, talk about Jesus, encourage one another, serve him. This is what the body of Christ is for. Israel repeats in a downward cycle. Israel abandons God and worships idols. God brings punishment. Israel cries out. And, God sometimes, and sometimes they repent, sometimes they don't, they just cry out, and God sends rescuers. This is kind of the cycle of the book of Judges. And they continue to descend worse and worse. And so oftentimes commentators on this will call this the cycle of sin. And in a moment I'm going to explain why I don't love that label, but I want that to just sink in for a moment, the cycle of sin. And so we're going to start by reading Judges 6, 1 through 6 together. The people of Israel did what was evil on the side of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep, or ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So this first part is Israel's blatant sin and rebellion meant that they were undeserving of salvation. So like the cycle we talked about, Israel is living in sin. They've rejected God. They sought after idols. Verse 1 says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And for seven years they suffered at the hand of Midian and the Amalekites, losing crops and animals. And they were suffering so much they would hide in the hills. And they would do this because Midian and the Amalekites were nomadic. So they traveled around. And so what is thought is that they would travel and make their rounds. And so during the harvest, they would come to this part of Israel. And as Israel was trying to harvest their crops, they would take it from them. And any of the animals they had recuperated during that time, they would take those as well. And they would just leave Israel devastated. And so the people during this time of year, knowing that Midian and the Amalekites were coming, would go hide in the hills to try to survive with whatever they had. But crops would be taken, livestock gone, And after plundering Israel, the people would just move on to their next thing. So Israel is suffering. And they're doing this for seven years, and this suffering brings them to some aspect of humility, 
We're not completely told that they repent, but they at least cry out to God, and God sends a prophet. Starting in verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Right? We might be thinking, oh good, Israel cried out and a prophet is sent. Finally some good news. Wrong. And he, the prophet, said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you, should ha- but you have not obeyed my voice. So Israel has cried out. God sends a prophet with an answer. As we talked about with this cycle, this is maybe where we would expect the deliverer to come in, right? They cried out, the prophets sent, okay, we're going to get somebody who's going to save Israel. But that is not what we get. We get a messenger from God that reiterates the covenant God made with Israel. I took care of you. I brought you out of Egypt. Essentially, like, I bought you to be my people. I brought you to this land, and you are supposed to obey me, and you have not. I want to read um, Judges 23, 12 through 13 momentarily, um, just talking about this covenant. For if you turn back, this is, this is God talking, and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out the nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorn in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. So God has warned them. God has taken care of these people. He's warned them, you need to be diligent in following me. And they choose not to. So Israel in no sense deserves to be saved. They just don't. They have chosen their lot. They made their bed. It was plainly outlined what would happen if they rejected God. So the prophet comes in and kind of has this mic drop moment from what we see in there. that they, He just says, he's like, you rejected God. And he leaves. No hope. This is a heart-wrenching part of the story. We feel for the people, but, but we know God is holy and just. And this is serious. What Israel is doing, it would be like a man took his wife to a nice restaurant. They sit down at a table with three chairs. And another woman comes up and sits down in the third chair. And the man thinks this is a great time for him to introduce his wife to his girlfriend. He says, honey, this is my girlfriend. You know I love you with all my heart. We've been married all these years, but I also love my girlfriend, so I'm hoping we can all just get along. Now, after his wife has thrown her drink, the cup, the plate, everything along at the table at her husband, she stands up and says, this is not going to work. It's either her or me. And this is the way it is with God. There there is not a side piece with God. It is him alone. But as we're talking about the series that God graciously uses us, broken vessels. And so instead of the cycle of sin, I want us to think about judges as the cycle of grace. God doesn't end the story here with the prophet. Even though Israel sins and rejects God over and over again and judges for hundreds of years, God continually saves them and loves them. 
Calling it the cycle of sin puts the focus on the people of the story. It puts the focus on me. But they are not the focus. God is. It is his grace and love that invites us into a loving relationship with him. And this is what we're going to see in this next section, starting in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizurite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So we're going to see Gideon's call. Gideon's call to be a judge is the call of the unworthy. And it may seem crazy. So the prophet comes along and says, Israel does not deserve to be saved. But yet God is working in the background to do that very thing. He is bringing about their salvation out of love and grace. He is going to use this man, Gideon, though it may seem weird, at least it did to me, that Gideon is called Almighty Man of Valor. This man throughout the story is, is a coward and resists being mighty and courageous. Gideon is hiding. He is trying to stay unseen from the enemy. Normally, you would be doing this with your wheat and chaff somewhere visible so that the chaff could go away, just blow on the wind, you'd keep your wheat. He's in a wine press. He's in this enclosed area. He's hiding. He's not a valiant warrior. And this makes me think about what God calls me. Holy. And that's hard for me to believe sometimes. Because you look at my life and I struggle with holiness. I'm not perfect. Most days I don't feel like it. But this is the idea. The focus isn't on me. It is on God. And so then Gideon is going to ask some questions and he says, Hey, if you say God is really with us, why haven't I seen all these wonderful things that our people have passed down? And this is what God says, verse 13. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. We already have the answer above. Like, hey, God, why aren't we seeing you doing anything? The answer is, Israel has rejected me. God is not going to bless Israel while they reject everything. It would be like giving a cookie to a kid right after they smack their sibling. They're going to th- think, I'm doing really good. This is a great choice. No, he won't bless them, but he's going to save them. This idea is undeserved mercy and grace. And so the answer to the question, where are you, God? Is he is right here, ready to give the deliverance that is so undeserved. Gideon is sent and told to go in his strength, really highlighting he doesn't have any. This is the pivotal part of the story. Gideon doesn't bring much to the table, except that he's going to follow God. And that's all God wants. Gideon seems to argue with God, 
Gideon is ultimately concerned with his own comfort. The way he talks to God shows this. God is saying, you, Gideon, but Gideon keeps pushing it to the people. Gideon doesn't want the focus on him. He doesn't want to step out and do the hard thing. He just wants God to bring the comfortableness he was told about. He's like, God, literally choose anybody else and just make my life more comfortable. Gideon wants God's blessing of God coming in to save everything and make life easy again, but doesn't want to do the difficult thing of actually going and being the one to follow God. And so God brings it back to God himself. He says, Gideon, I will be with you, and that is all you need. Gideon is weak. Gideon's family is weak, but God is not. And we continue in verse 17. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come and bring you, bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. And so it was really like this. Gideon is not the example of behavior, but the recipient of God's grace. Right? The, the, Gideon asks for signs three times throughout this story. And God even gives him a fourth due to his lack of trust. And I want to take a moment just talk about this idea of signs. Right here, people talking about looking for signs in life or, or basing decisions purely on if God has opened or closed a door or window. But this is not great decision-making as you are trying to seek God. Gideon is not the example here. He shows us that we need a better Savior. We need Jesus and Jesus is the one we are called to look to. Now Gideon is not rebuked or belittled for asking for a sign, but it does show his lack of faith and trust in God. I was struggling with a major, major decision one time. I knew God wanted me to do something really hard, and I just didn't like it. And so I was sitting on a lake asking God for various signs. I was like, God, this bird that's right here, if it flies away right now, then it means this. Yes. <laughs> or if this would happen to this leaf, like, like Gideon, I already knew what God wanted, but I didn't trust God enough to follow through with it. Paul talks about wanting to go share the gospel in the country, and, but he, and he just says the Holy Spirit has closed the door to that. And so God at times will come and then shut and open doors. He's God, he can do that. But trying to make all my life decisions with signs and doors takes out the relationship and pursuit of our Heavenly Father who wants to speak and to guide us. He has given us His Spirit for this very thing. So when we are only looking for signs and doors, we're focusing on ourselves. What is convenient? What seems like the easy answer? And our focus needs to be on Jesus. And we don't really do this in any area of life. I don't look at my two-year-old and say, hey, will you please eat your vegetables? And he goes, no. And I go, oh, that door closed. So I guess you don't have to do the, eat your vegetables. No, sometimes God will close doors and open things, but that is not the defining decision-making of our life. It's about trusting God and following him. The story continues in verse 25. That night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here. 
with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So God is calling Gideon to exclusivity first before he can fulfill the mission. But before Gideon can go on this mission, he is given an assignment first. And it seems weird. God's like, go save Israel, but first go deal with your idolatry. This called exclusivity. Gideon is being called to worship God and God alone. Gideon has to get rid of his idols. And what's crazy, this is actually his dad's idol. This is the idol that the family would worship. So Gideon had to come back that what all of humanity is called to do, worship the one true God and him alone. And it's scary. So Gideon does this in the secret of night. Right? He's still afraid, but he does what he's called to do. But the people figure it out. They're like, it's Gideon. And the people react like, we should kill him. He destroyed this. And God has someone step in and supernaturally protects him. We see that God is working on his behalf. That it is only God that he needs. And so as we're thinking about this call on our life, I see three calls on us from this passage. Our call, the first one is the DTR, uh, which means define the relationship. That's what we first need to do. Define our relationship with God. I doubt you have a bail set up in your closet or an Asherah pole outside your house. But our heart is pulled by all kinds of other masters. And we need to decide, are we going to be like Israel and judges who go after other gods and become unrecognizable? Or will we answer the call of exclusivity to destroy our idols and serve God wholeheartedly, even in scary and hard things? It's the way Jesus says it is, or it's idolatry. And a fake Jesus or a Jesus I make to look the way I want him to is just as much of an idol. When we do not know the character and desires of God, we are going to look more like his enemies than his followers. And it's not my intention this morning that anyone feels beat up or belittled. But our heart, in our hearts we tend to think, look how great I am, look at how good I am. And the reality is I am not good. My heart struggles. My heart sometimes wants what is evil and wrong. And John says in 1 John 1.8, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And this idea of like, if I'm going to say I'm without sin, if I'm going to say without, if I'm without problems, I'm a liar. And so I want to be very hard this morning, not to shame you, but so that we are humbled enough to be honest. Because I've been hard on Gideon too. But the point is that we should see ourselves in Gideon, scared cowards who have issues with giving our hearts to other things. We often want to follow Jesus, but tend to chase after other things and give our affections at best and our hearts to other things often. Israel's worship of other gods was a matter of fact to them. It seemed practical. The worship of many gods, because each one had a specific thing that they would bless. 
a God for rain for your harvest, for fertility so you could have more kids, or for battle so you could win your wars, and the list goes on. It seemed very practical to them. We fall into that too. We think, think things we do are practical, or they make sense to us because of the culture we live in. Or we are pointing fingers at the world saying, oh, look at all that sin, and all the while I'm being comfortable in my own sin. Are you caught up in getting angry at those who don't follow Jesus for acting like they don't follow Jesus? That you forget or ignore the sin in your own life? Paul talks to the Roman church about this. He says, you point to the people and you go, you're so bad for doing these awful things. And Paul says, but yet in your hearts you have the same root sins. Or you're doing the same things just in secret. We can worship money being so anxious over it that it controls us, or wanting more and more money or things, thinking that's going to make us happy. We can worship entertainment. All you have to do is pull out your phone and check your screen time. Or how often do we just turn on the TV and just stop with all of life? We ignore people, relationships, even our kids, to watch the newest TV show or settle on the couch for hours of football or another sporting event. I tell my kids that they are more important than my phone. But one day I was sitting on phone after a, after a long day, and my son came up and asked several times, Dad, will you play with me? Will you play with me? Oh, give me a second, give me a second. And after I don't know how long it was, he says, Dad, you say you love me more than your phone, but why are you on it so much? That was devastating and convicting. Our politics can become idols. The truth, is, the truth is, if you follow Jesus, you belong to a whole different kingdom, and it's not America. It's Jesus' kingdom. We're called to still strive for the good of this land, but it's not our home. But yet we buy into the political us versus them mentality. Many of us have just done away with our gospel witness for political jargon and sharp tongues. The one person said, we are so busy hating people for thinking differently than us, that we lose all credibility with the world. We show them we have no capability for love, compassion, or even share the good news in grace with people who are different. Sex has become just as much an idol and master in the church. Many would say, oh, I would never have an affair. You know, it still happens in the church. But even for those who would never have an affair, there is still a staggering rate of secret pornography usage in the church. 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women say they are addicted to pornography. Or we linger over photos or movies. We have bought so much into our culture and what it says, we just go along with it. Like Israel, not knowing sometimes that we're being dragged along until we look nothing like the God we serve and look everything like the culture around us. But we are called to stick out, to be a holy people set apart. Work and success or power can be a master and an idol for us. I was reading a story of a man, Dr. Rich Edwards, a successful doctor, and one day on a way to a hunting trip, he suffered what should have been a fatal, fiery car crash. And somehow he survived. But he lost seven of his fingers, and success was gone all at once. And he wrote this, God put an absolute halt on my life, I was so busy being successful, I was on such a fast track that God was a part of my life, but he was not the most important part. 
He was not on the throne of my heart or at the center of my universe. I was at the center. I don't believe God caused the fire, but I believe God allowed it because he wanted to get my attention. Like a parent who tries to get through to a child, God grabbed me by the shoulders, sat me down, and said, I want you to listen to me. That was the beginning of spiritual awakening in my life. Right? And this idea of going back to 1 John 1.8, which says, we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Right? We need to be honest. And so I want to ask some honest questions. I had mentioned the book earlier, Not a Fan, by Kyle Eidelman. And in one of the chapters, he, he asks four questions. And how you answer each question can help, you, help show you what is competing with Jesus for your affection. And those are uh, in the sermon notes on the back. But it's, what do you sacrifice your money on? When you are hurt, where do you go for comfort? What disappoints or frustrates you most? And what is it that you get really excited about? In this book, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller addresses a number of different idols that our culture worships. And at one point, Keller points out that all of us worship surface idols and deep idols. And so we need to look deeper than just surface-level struggles with money or lust or entertainment or power, whatever it is. And so, church, I want, to, I want to be vulnerable and honest with you this morning. There was a very dark point in my life when I was in college. I was looking for my hope and joy everywhere else but God. Life was really hard, and no one thought to see if the Bible college student was struggling. Life got worse and worse. I wasn't sure if life was worth living anymore. I went to a counselor, and I was diagnosed as an addict, and I started recovery. I went to a 12-step program at a church in which I encountered Jesus like I never had before. Everything was turned upside down from the way I thought it was, and for the first time there was joy in following Jesus. And underneath all the things I was doing to just try to make myself happy, I learned much deeper issues. I wanted control over everything. I didn't trust God. I wanted it my way. Life written by my story. And you know what? My story sucked. I was miserable. I make an awful God. It was by giving up everything to follow Jesus that my life was changed, made whole. He is worth it. He is worth forsaking all other masters to follow with our entire being. And with that, when we're ready to follow him with our entire being, we are next called to the mission. We have our service call. Gideon was called to save Israel from the Midianites. Right? Our, our call isn't really to go fight, to be like the townspeople in Frankenstein, to pick up our pitchforks and go after something. But we should ask God, what are we called to do? Called to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute you, to speak truth in love, give of what you have, share God's love and the good news of Jesus with others, seek the good of others, to lay down your preferences for the sake of unity in the church. Matthew 28, the, the Great Commission, calls us to go and make disciples. You are going to be asked to do hard and difficult things. But like Gideon, God is with you. It's not about you. It's about relying on God. And the third is our call to a legacy. And so we're going to read Judges 8, starting in verse 22 with that. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your sons and your grandson also. 
For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil, and the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Aphra. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. So Gideon's legacy to Israel, right? This last thing is, what is our legacy? Gideon ultimately failed Israel. He started well saying, don't, don't rely on me, rely on God. But then he takes all this gold and makes this ephod. And it says Israel hoard after it. It became an idol. They worshipped it. And that lasted much longer than just when he was alive. And we see the story reset in the cycle that Israel has again rejected God and sadly led by Gideon in that. He even left a legacy to his family. We see in Judges 9 that one of his sons, wants, after Gideon's gone, wants to lead so badly that he sows this discord throughout all the people that how awful his brothers are so that he can lead and he goes and he kills all 70 of his brothers so he can be in charge. Because Gideon was not steadfast in his legacy. His legacy ends in tragedy. So I encourage you, do not, res- do not forget your resolve as we have this DTR of defining, are we really going to follow Jesus? Remember that. If you're wanting to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, take the steps to do it and do it well. Gideon and Israel did not know God deeply. So I encourage you, know God Right? Like I said earlier, don't just read the Bible and put it down. Study it. Get some books to help you out. Put in the work that is completely worth it. Ask questions. Get involved in life groups and Bible studies. Find another believer to meet with and talk about God and what you're reading. Encourage one another. This is what we are for. So what is your decision going forward? We talked about the pattern of sin in Israel we want to change that from the pattern of sin or the cycle of sin to the cycle of grace. That we fail time and time again and yet God is still gracious. Even when no one in Israel was good enough to stand up to Midian, God did not leave them. He rose up an unlikely man to save Israel. And this points to how great God is. What makes you great? We talked about stories earlier, Captain America, strong, fast, heroic. Elsa and Anna are wonderful princesses in pretty dresses. And we tend to love stories of smart, beautiful, heroic characters that we wish we were. But as we look at stories in the Bible, especially this one of Gideon, it isn't him who is the hero. He regularly doubts God. Now God meets him where he's at, and that says more about God than Gideon. But even all the paring down of the army, God, God takes this army of 10,000, pairs it down to 300 men, and he literally says, so that no one in Israel can boast, because God gets the glory. 
And I think there are two responses to a sermon like this that are both kind of extremes. One extreme is being too puffed up in pride. I'm not like Gideon, I'm a good person. And the other extreme is, I, I've, I've just messed up. I've done too much. God, God can't love me. Too broken, too messed up. And the point is that both groups, whichever you fall into, we're all messed up. So the first group who thinks you are okay and everyone else is the problem, and to be really honest, you aren't really that great. You fall short. Your pride is just the beginning. Your pride is a hindrance to God using you. You will turn more out like Gideon at the end of his life, worshiping a God you created to fit your goodness rather than the God of the Bible. God is holy, be humble. God is loving, love people. Be honest about your failures and flaws and you will actually notice a greater love, appreciation, and admiration for our Savior. To the second group, you who think you are so bad that God couldn't love you, your sins are not bigger than God's love and grace like we've seen in the life of Gideon. Israel failed and rejected God over and over and over again, and yet God saves them over and over and over again. I can't fathom the love of God. Not the cycle of sin, but the cycle of grace. To love you and in Jesus to get rid of your sins and to make you new. So trust him. Give him the sin you've been holding on to that's been weighing you down. Gideon is mentioned in Hebrews 11, what we call the Hall of Faith. But honestly, when I read the story of Gideon, I'm kind of like, why? He wasn't that great. But some may look at my life and be like, why did God use Stephen? He's not that great. <laughs> you may look at your life and ask, why would God want to use me? But he absolutely does. In this whole series, we are looking at broken vessels. That's the whole point. Those that sometimes seem the most unlikely are the ones that God often calls to use to change the world for his glory. Gideon's story gives us hope that God is the author and main character. He uses broken vessels like you and me for his glory. There's grace and patience as we pursue him. And then it's our job to point to him because I am nothing and he is everything. So this morning, recognize your need for God. And let us stand, and I want us to stand and close. We're going to say one more prayer together. And honestly, you don't have to say this. I want us all to stand, but if you don't want to say it, you don't have to. Unless you are really ready to be used for God's glory. So let's put that up and read it together. And then the worship team can come up. Dear Jesus, Worship team, you can come up. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you use broken vessels. Thank you that you seek after us even when we're undeserving of mercy and grace. Lord, let us see you for all that you are and be honest about all that we are. In Jesus' sweet, precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. 
A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.